Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We want to bring Lionel Laurent back uh, with Bloomberg Gadfly in London to talk to us about Italian banking and the mystery of monetary policy. Here's the chart quickly on Monodoposki, and this is 1,000 euros, and then 200 euros, and then 100 euros, and we're down here at 18 right now. I mean, it's been a total collapse of this bank. Lionel, what I'm frustrated about is I have not seen one iota of discussion about what it's going to cost the price of this transaction, whether it's the price of bond to equity, whether it's the yield taken on some form of bond, or, or whether it's the actual dollar or euro figure that's going to be up. Is there any price being discussed? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I, look, I, the difficulty here is that all, all Italian banks have taken a big hit. It's not just Montepaschi. The, the, the change that you mentioned, uh, there has been market cap destruction across the board. Um, we don't even know, investors don't even know what the balance sheet is worth, what these non-flowing loans are worth. Even appetite for the equity at these incredibly cheap, battered levels of 0.1 times, uh, times book right. uh, has not attracted the, the investors. So right. right now we're talking yeah. about tw 20 billion euros, right? 20 billion euros could get you 30 Montepaschis. Um, it's, it's completely unclear as to what you would spend the money on. So right now, it's, it's really a complete lack of faith in, in these balance sheets, in these valuations, and right. really the, the lack of mark-to-market -market going on here. For our global audience, particularly in London and particularly in New York and Washington, this is beyond odd. Are there outside institutions coming to bear upon an original Italian dialogue and discourse? I'm skeptical. I really wish there was. But I feel like we've, we were here at the start of this year. We're here at the end of this year. 20 billion euros, again, what, you, you could do a lot. You, you could buy Unicredit with 20 billion. But I feel that this is now political and that the whole discussion will be about whether you can avoid a bail-in of investors, whether you can get a political solution to kick the can down the road. It'll require the ECB, it'll require Europe, it'll require Germany agreeing something with Italy. Uh, my, my concern is that we're still going to be talking about Italian banks and we still want to fix this solution well into next year. If I was a vulture fund, what would I have to do to get some degree of clarity on a bag of assets that I may buy from one of these institutions, how difficult would it be? It's, it's difficult because there's so much that goes on. I mean, you do want to get some value, right? Yeah. And, and, and trying to work out how you can actually get that tiny bit of value left, that takes some security on, on, on getting those cash flows. They've got right? villas in Tuscany. They've got, they've got all kinds of but, stuff on their books. They've got buildings around the corner from our bureau in Rome. How do, how do we value this stuff? Well, but, but the issue is how do you retrieve the cash flows? Where is the legal certainty? Yeah. Some of these 
loans have been kicking around for 10 years, and, and you need political reform and legal reform, which has started, to actually get the, the infrastructure behind getting the cash flows back for these vulture funds. There is appetite there, absolutely. It's starting to change. But in terms of the, the, the discount that you would have to apply to get any kind of certainty on, on getting the cash flows back, right. it, it's, it, it still remains a big question. Lionel, very valuable. Thank you so much. Look for Lionel Laurent with Bloomberg Gadfly, no doubt, on European uh, banking. former chairman of Morgan Stanley, Asia, former chief economist at Morgan Stanley, now a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs at Yale University, also senior lecturer at the Yale School of Management. Stephen Roach joins us here in our studios in New York, recently returned from China. Great to have you here. And as someone who has traveled to China before, I know that the conversation plays itself out over and over and over again. People ask you while you're there for your sense of what U.S. Policy toward China is, and I imagine there was some particular difficulty answering those questions this time while you were over there. If people were asking you sort of what Donald Trump's policy toward China is, I won't ask you how many times you had to, to field that question. But what do you find yourself saying when asked? Well, you know, I, I talk about the um, some of the uh, the challenges that this new administration is going to face in delivering on its promises to. Um, get America growing again, deliver jobs, and, and make the country great again. And is it is it a, uh, a challenge that's going to come at China's expense or ultimately at America's expense or the, the world's expense? And I guess the point that I make is that um, Trump inherits a, a difficult set of circumstances because the United States is a low savings economy that's going to be expanding its budget deficit uh, under the uh, Trump regime, and that budget deficit is going to push our low savings rate even lower, create more problems with respect to our current account and multilateral trade imbalances, Tom. So that puts pressure more and more on China uh, and the U.S. to find a way out that doesn't create now, issues for the dollar or U.S. interest rates. David, I thought that was a key sentence yeah. within Dr. Roach's note was a bilateral fix in a multilateral world, which really captured some of those tensions. When, you, when you're over there, how, how is news about the transition being communicated? In other words, what, what is of interest uh, to the press in China about, uh, about Donald Trump's China policy, in code as it is? Uh, what's being communicated? How's it being communicated? Well, I mean, and, you know, the, the, the big shock was the, uh, the phone call from uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, president of Taiwan, to Donald Trump, which really took the, um, uh, the discussion U.S.-China into a realm that the Chinese were completely unprepared for. Uh, they, they understand the broad constellation of forces, whether it's the South China Sea, the, uh, some of the, the currency capital outflow-related issues. But Taiwan was not uh, a, a topic that was uh, thought about ahead of time by the Chinese, and it's not quite clear that it was something that was thought about by the Trump administration either. But it is what it is, and um, this is, you know, touches on the, the key perceptions of territorial sovereignty mm. for, for China. And so I think the, uh, the risk here is, is that the incoming Trump administration doesn't fully appreciate the waters that they are wading into with respect to this issue. And I'm not sure the Chinese mm -hmm. fully understand it either. How will they adapt to the generalness of the cabinet 
and of the senior administration official choices, the idea of the military within a Trump administration? Well, it, it's it's a great question, Tom. I mean, that sort of changes the the character by which the uh, by which this new administration is going to address uh, global issues. Is it going to be one of uh, negotiating a um, a safer and saner world? Is it going to be a more muscular United mm-hmm. States is going to demand uh, that um, allies and adversaries alike uh, play according to its rules? Uh, these are these are tough uh, strategic issues. Uh, one of the issues that uh, that I found being addressed uh, when I was there last week was uh, what is the U.S. going to do with respect to enforcing its treaties with uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, and and other Southeast Asian ASEAN economies? Is it going to walk away? Well, uh, this is goes, it going to be well, tough? David Gurr, this is really important. This goes to what we talked about before, which is adjacencies. Mm. And that we, we have such a simplistic bilateral deal-making tone. Frankly, n- not just Mr. Trump. I don't mean to criticize the president-elect without the nuances of those adjacencies. How does, to David's question, how does Singapore look at the new administration and the pivot to Asia? Well, the, the, the new administration is uh, uh, pivoting away from the pivot. Uh, under the Obama uh, doctrine, that one that Secretary Clinton very much uh, uh, supported, that um, uh, the U.S. Uh, focus on uh, Asia, especially through TPP, was designed to put leverage on, on, on China and possibly contain what they worried to be a— um, uh, a rise of China that was going well beyond something that uh, the United States was comfortable with strategically. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, under if, uh, a Clinton uh, presidency, which will not occur, that that pressure, uh, that China containment strategy, uh, would have been an important feature uh, of the next four years. That uh, is taking a different form right now under under Trump. China containment appears to be shifting from the economic realm to more of a military strategy. And that's a worrisome uh, uh, development to think about. Stephen Roach, of course, with Morgan Stanley for years and now at Yale University. Uh, A beginning question, as David and I ask you and quiz you on our central banks, is the Phillips curve alive and well? This odd relationship, this guesstimate, this, if it was Newtonian 19th century, would be multiple plug-in belief in a relationship of jobs and inflation and a greater economy? Is the Phillips curve working? No, it's not working, but that doesn't prevent central banks from pretending that it will. I mean, why else did the Fed uh, uh, move um, uh, last week? There's a belief that, you know, inflation is moving back to their target, and so they want want to align interest rates uh, with a commitment to, to price stability. So uh, using uh, short-term interest rates to address um, uh, in- inflation control is at the heart of what central banks uh, have, have long done in, in, in this country and, and probably around the world as well, Tom. What did you make of, of what Janet Yellen, Fed Chair Janet Yellen, said uh, in her news conference last week about the degree to which she and her colleagues have been thinking about the prospects for big fiscal policy, big fiscal spending, the fact that uh, this decision was based at least in part on the 
sense that that might be coming down the line. How, how active a role do you see the Fed playing here if we are to see a big spending package like the ones that uh, the president-elect has proposed? Well, you know, David, the, the Fed has always said uh, that, you know, they <clears throat> uh, don't believe that monetary policy can do the, the, the job alone. I mean, I used to work at the Fed back in the Jurassic era, and that was something that was, um, uh, you know, always in the template of anything uh, you wrote in terms of official statements, you know, you know way back then, uh, and, and, and still is the case uh, right now. And the, and the Fed has argued in more uh, recent uh, times that <clears throat> the uh, unconventional uh, uh, monetary ease and the swollen balance sheets reflect the fact that fiscal policy uh, is not doing the heavy lifting. Well, guess what? Trump has promised to, to be much more proactive in terms of fiscal policy. So uh, does that <clears throat> mean that the Fed has to accelerate uh, its withdrawal from uh, the, the current stance, and, and I, I think that's what Janet Yellen was alluding to. If, in fact, the, fe, uh, the, the fiscal authorities are going to play a more active role as the president-elect has promised, then, you know, that suggests a different approach for central banks in the U.S. We were speaking with John Taylor uh, last week, and, and he was... Uh, the next uh, Fed chairman, right? <laughs> Perhaps we could get him to say so, but uh, he was very optimistic that we would see reform to the way the Fed is structured and the way that the Fed interacts with, with the Congress going forward. He thinks the appetite is there for, for that to happen. Do you foresee that happening as well, a change here in that in that relationship principally? I would be surprised if, if there would be <clears throat> legislation passed to sort of codify a rules-based framework that uh, Professor Taylor has long uh, advocated. On the other hand, if he is appointed uh, the, the, the next chairman uh, of the Federal Reserve, you better believe that's where the Fed uh, is headed. So I think it's going to be more personality-driven rather than um, – uh, driven by a, a new piece of legislation that reformulates well, the mandate. How do you feel then, personality driven, about let's even assume not the chairman, not the vice chairman, but the governors in the presidents, with the presidents having a heritage of business, not being fancy pants macroeconomists like Stephen Roach? We all agree there's got to be a couple, Kevin Warsh comes to mind, of people outside the normal economic boom. But a lot of people supporting the president-elect would say, down with a macroeconomist, wouldn't they? Well, they, I think they say down with experts, down with facts, yeah, down fair. with truth. Okay, uh, I'll go so, there. So, I mean, you know, you got to be careful uh, in this um, uh, type of mindset that, you know, we go into where you can sort of say whatever you want and defend it as the, the, the new post-truth uh, reality. But, but you know, I, I think that... Um, you know, getting back to the uh, the Fed, the Fed historically, from you know the years that I worked there under uh, uh, people like Arthur Burns, remember him, Tom, to uh, uh, Paul Volcker, to Alan Greenspan, to Janet Yellen, the chairman has played a disproportionate role in shaping uh, right. uh, monetary You'd policy. You'd like to see less of that and Fed decision making. I, I certainly think that okay. you know, this is a committee that should. should be ruled right. by a democracy. I, very quickly here, you mentioned Chairman Burns. Folks, he used to do it unmeasured. Should we have a Fed that has the courage to do more than 25 basis points? If they're going to act, act with a little more power into the system? Or should they stay green, spanning, and measured? 
large measures are designed, I think, to surprise markets. Greenspan wanted to uh, sort of coddle the markets. Agreed. And, and that was, we go that back was to the Burns? problem. It depends on, you know, where, where we're, how, how far the markets go uh, in taking us to unpleasant places. And if mm-hmm. the markets are turn out to be a problem, which is uh, clearly a, a risk in terms of some of the dislocations that we're seeing now in markets, right. then, then it will require so, larger actions. David, can you imagine young Roach <laughs> sitting at the Fed with a pipe? <laughs> Emulating the chairman. Never smoked a pipe, Tom, but certainly had, uh, you know, a a great experience in dealing with characters like Arthur Burns. Characters like Tom Keene. That that goes back to the the personalization (laughs) of it as Chairman Burns uh, battled with the Nixon uh, White House. Stephen Roach, always a joy. David Gurr and Tom Keene. beat the Rangers last night, which I think is the only reason Stephen Auth is here. Did you go to the hockey game last night? I did not. You did not go to the hockey game no, last night? No, I did not. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm saving my energy for the Giants game on Thursday. That'll be very exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> Stephen Auth with us uh, with, with Federated. Tell us, give us an update on Federated. A long time ago, Federated owned the money market short-term paper business. Do you still own it, even, even with all that's changed? We don't think we ever owned it, but we we have a decent share of it. Yeah, we're still yeah. one of the top ranked money market yeah. uh, players uh, in in the United States. Uh, we're becoming a pretty big equity player, which is where I where I'm. Focused. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know you're focused on the the equity view, and we're just beginning our 2017 views. Are you surprised by the double digit wonderment of 2016? Uh, I, I am a little bit surprised, Tom. We, we've been cautious all year up until the day after the Trump Yeah, uh, things changed. Victory. The facts changed. And, and we shifted at that point to a more at least neutral stance from an underweight stance on equities. But, yeah, it's been a tough year. I mean, we've been through really an 18-month bear, mini bear market, really, going all the way back to May of 15. And we've now yeah. – we think we've now exited that. One of the things that's interesting, David, is to have someone of such grizzled experience as Mr. Auth – who has enjoyed being wrong before, so talking about it is not painful. It's like, you know, you're a little underweight this year, and that's what happens. When, when you look at, uh, at sort of what changed after... Scars, scars all on my back, Tom. <laughs> Me too. Oh, uh, let's go to the election and sort of what changed after that. We saw this impulse here to get into uh, things that might be in line with, uh, with an infrastructure spending plan. We saw people going to, to financials. Uh, how in that rush were you, and, and, and now a few months after that, a few weeks after that at least... Uh, how much sense did that make? How much of that was just exuberance? Uh, there's a little bit of exuberance in the air. I wrote a piece last weekend called Wall of Hope. Mm. Uh, you know, usually markets climb walls of worry. And right now, this market's oh. climbing a wall of hope, We're which I think is sort of this. interesting. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's unusual because, you know, if you think about it, against the context of a long period now where we've been told we can't grow, productivity's declining, just going to keep carving up the pie, uh, and business is really under attack, really. I think we're seeing something different now. There's something in the air. You can see it in the confidence indicators. You can see it in the stock market. You've got a businessman running um, the bully pulpit, if you will. And I think his proposals are somewhat misunderstood, actually. Mm -hmm. 
In fact, people keep talking about fiscal package as if it is – and I have every political analyst in the country in my offices over the course of the year, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, Hillary, Trump, it didn't matter. We're going to get a big fiscal stimulus. I think we're in this world where we think uh, since the private sector can't grow, the only thing to make it grow is the government. Either the Fed or the government spends money it doesn't have and somehow hires people and gets them to work. And that is precisely not – what Trump is thinking about. Yeah. He doesn't articulate it well. He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur. But what I would like to use the term uh, restructuring, economic restructuring, to define the Trump program. And if you think about that, <clears throat> deregulation, getting out of the way, making businesses more efficient, cutting their costs, cutting their tax burdens, making the tax code simpler, Infrastructure spending from the perspective of making the economy more efficient to raise productivity. All of those things can improve economic growth, maybe bump inflation a little. But importantly, I think, and this is the real rub here with the Trump plan, uh, the, the bond bears, and you know they've been out in force in the last 24 hours even, right? <clears throat> the bond bears would say, uh, look, this is full stop inflationary. When you apply fiscal stimulus to an economy that's at full employment, but if you're providing structural reform to an economy at full employment, maybe you can increase the growth rate and not have inflation go through the roof, not have the 10-year bond yield go to 5%. And in that context, you're in another leg of the equity bull market. And for now, I think that's what we're in. Obviously, things don't go straight up. We're due for a pullback, some accident, something. But uh, our view is that this wall of hope is going to keep us going for most of next year. How much of this is, is attributable to the plans that you were talking about there, the infrastructure plans, versus something more ineffable, just a, a, a new sense of optimism, uh, the fact that we're going to see a change in Washington, the fact that we're going to see uh, Republicans controlling uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch, less based on the, the granular nature of these plans. So <laughs> we don't have the granular nature of the plans yet, but, but more just on a feeling. Well, one of the things I've learned uh, from the various scars on my back, David, is that I'm not a lot smarter than everybody else. So part of me thinks, oh, I have an insight here that no one else has figured out. Because I hear everyone talking about this fiscal spending, mm. and particularly the infrastructure, and they're all focused how big it's going to be, how many dollars it's going to get spent, how quickly, mm -hmm. et cetera. I think the markets and businesses actually smell out what I smell out, that this is something more than just that. And um, I think that's part of what's going on. And look what's moving. I mean, you know, the stocks that are really in the heart, the crosshairs of these reforms, like the bank stocks. Mm -hmm. You got deregulation. You got lower taxes. Uh, you know, you've got nominal GDP growth picking up. These are all things that help the banks. Uh, you know, the sector, the right sectors are moving in this sort of different view of the world. So I, I think actually people are sniffing this out. Uh -huh. Where are valuations? I mean, just on a, a, a trailing PE basis. I mean, I mean, not that you and I want to recite Graham Dodd and Cottle, not that Guru knows who <laughs> yeah. Graham Dodd and or Cottle is, but where are valuations right now? Graham Dodd, I, I think that might have been a bill or something. <laughs> uh, well, on a trailing basis, valuations look very extended. And you could say, in a way, this entire move post-Trump has been a, value, a revaluation of equities. I don't think that's the case. 
I think we think markets are being evaluated at about 18 times where they believe earnings are going to be in 12 to 18 months. Let me me interrupt. This is critical Mm. because you said 18 months. Yeah. I agree. It's not a, I mean, the media does a one year view. Right. I agree the Trumpism has moved us out 18, 20 months. Exactly. In a wall of hope environment, yeah. people are willing to look 18 months out. Yeah. In a things are going nowhere environment, everyone wants to know tell me okay. what the trailing earnings are. I can't convey enough, folks, how important this is. This is called theta on the x axis, which is a time continuum of the belief from confidence. Exactly. And all of a sudden, everybody reaches out. The middle syllable of economy is con, <laughs> confidence. It could be a con job. That's right. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> That's where the cynic from Brooklyn is going. The economy doesn't go anywhere without confidence. So, yeah, 18 times right. 140, which is where we think oh. we easily get to by sometime in 2018. Are we going back to a sell side? The securities analysts that come on the show, all good people, where they're ordered by their research directors to start, well, can you give me a 2018 view? In, you know, February of 2017. Right. I mean, you and I remember this. Yeah. The thing is about the sell side is they are hesitant to put out numbers that they don't have facts to support. Agreed. In the new world, I totally agree. Particularly they've got the attorney general chasing after whatever. So, But are we going back with Donald Trump? Are we going back to what you and I remember? Our five-year view on international business machines. I think it is. It is changing now. Yeah. It's very The horizon cool. is changing. Wall of hope. Do you have any idea what we're talking about, David? Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I follow. I can follow here. Climbing that wall of hope with you. But. Stephen Auth, <laughs> Federated Investors, of course, uh, doing equity investments. Still this putting faith on the x-axis. We're, we're, they're forcing us to continue with Mr. Auth. We're having so much fun. Like, <laughs> really, I mean, seriously, folks, trying to figure out the time continuum and the changes of uh, Mr. Mr. Auth's phrase. The wall of hope. I love that. With audacity, we will use that. Did you get, get that, David? With the yeah, yeah. Audacity. <laughs> Did you get that, David? Got it. I haven't I started it. my Christmas yeah. shopping yet. Help me. <laughs> Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Alan Kruger, Princeton economist, teacher of public policy at Princeton, has written a piece uh, with his colleague there uh, at the university, Alan Blinder, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, looking at Donald Trump's infrastructure mistake, as they put it. We've been talking about the infrastructure plan this morning so much as we know about it. And before we get into that, Alan, I want to ask you, I mean, I think right after the election, I was asking every guest without fail here for a definition of Trumponomics. Let's reprise that here on December the 21st. We any closer to having a sort of standardized definition of what Trumponomics is? No. <laughs> Good morning to you, David. Good morning, Alan. We see that Alan Kruger has continued to not take the surveillance radio course. There you go. <laughs> a no, no, a no uh, for emphasis there. Well, you give, give us a sense of, of maybe I mean, what the shape knows? of it is shaping I mean, out I mean, to be. Who, who knows? Uh, Donald Trump said he uh, thought wages were too high. The next day he said uh, he was misheard. Uh, then he said he was for a $10 federal minimum wage. 
and apparently he plans to nominate someone for labor secretary as opposed to the minimum wage altogether. So uh, I think it's very hard to divine uh, exactly uh, where he stands on economic policy since it's a moving target. Walk us through here what we know of the the infrastructure proposal we expect to be on the table here uh, when he takes office. You point out in your piece that Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross have sort of outlined in some detail what that's going to look like. Uh, Give us a sense of its shape. Well, that's one area where the campaign actually was specific, Um, one of the few areas. And what they proposed, I think, could be a component of a robust infrastructure plan, but just a component of it. So uh, I think the problem is that the plan is really lacking as opposed to uh, uh, it, it being a mistake to have an infrastructure plan or even for this to be a component of the infrastructure plan. Uh, what uh, Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross proposed in their uh, 10-page white paper is uh, to have uh, the, the federal government provide a very large tax credit, an 82% tax credit, to encourage private investors to invest in infrastructure. Um, There are some projects, probably a small number, where that makes some sense to have uh, private sector participation in uh, the design and and construction of the infrastructure. Uh, 82% subsidy strikes us as as awfully generous. But more importantly, there are many other projects where there's no revenue stream. So there's no incentive for private investors to make an investment in public infrastructure, projects like schools or hospitals, roads that don't have holes. Alan, the hallmark of your work is granular with concept. And in the back of your important essay with Professor Blinder, you bring up something that I'm going to suggest worked like a charm, which was build America bonds. Educate our audience on the success, the proven success of Build America Bonds? Build America Bonds uh, were one of the uh, secrets of the Recovery Act. Agreed, agreed. The Recovery Act provided for a new type of municipal bond, one where the federal government encouraged, subsidized uh, municipal governments, state governments, to do infrastructure projects by giving them a 35% direct subsidy to cover their interest costs. So instead of tax-exempt bonds, which work through wealthy investors who get uh, interest tax-free, these work by providing a direct subsidy to the state and local governments to pay their interest costs. These were taxable bonds, so they were appealing to investors from abroad. They were appealing to nonprofits, uh, to pension funds, to any investors who don't have tax liabilities in the U.S., uh, they were available for just two years, Tom, and in that period, almost $200 billion of Build America bonds were issued. And remember, 2009, 2010, that was a time when the bond markets were frozen. So this new innovation enabled infrastructure to go forward uh, at a time when financing was extremely challenged. State and local governments saved, by my calculations, over $13 billion because of the subsidy and the lower interest rate that they were paying. Mm-hmm. Why were they paying a lower interest rate? They paid a lower interest rate because there were many more buyers of these bonds than municipal bonds, because foreign investors and pension funds and, and, and uh, nonprofits, endowment funds uh, all desired these bonds. Alan, looking back on that Recovery Act, uh, what are some, some lessons learned here that this new administration could uh, 
change or do things differently going forward here in terms of what what, what didn't work about that Recovery Act that could that could be different this time around? Well, you know, you're talking about an $800 billion act, and I think there were many, many different components for the Recovery Act. That was a very different time. The unemployment rate was on its way up to 10% at that time, probably higher without the Recovery Act. Um, but just as far as infrastructure is concerned, um, I think one has to recognize that infrastructure spending does go out slowly. It takes a while to get the projects off the ground. One aspect of infrastructure that does go out quickly, however, is maintenance. And we have an enormous need in this country for uh, maintaining our roads and our bridges and our highways for fixing uh, uh, structurally damaged bridges, for example. Um, maintenance also has a very high economic return, and it's particularly difficult to see how uh, having a, a private equity investment is going to help repair existing roads uh, where it's already very difficult to collect more revenue in terms of tolls from those roads. So um, uh, I think I would emphasize if, if, if the administration is interested in investing in infrastructure uh, to generate a high return and, and to um, generate more economic activity in well, the near term to focus on maintenance. Alan Kruger with us of Princeton University. Always there are eight ways to go. David, can I rip up the script? Please, go for it, Tom. Okay? Yeah. Alan Kruger, among minimum wage with CARD, among your teaching, among your public service, your discussion with Professor Blinder on infrastructure, you wrote a little book that I read every word of. It was a jewel on terror. I found it exceptionally illuminating. Back then it was new, it was different, and yet terror has endured. As you look at Berlin, as you look at the assassination in Ankara, what have you learned since you wrote that beautiful monograph about terror? Well, thanks for, for uh, asking me about it, Tom. It's uh, actually sitting right in front of me. I'm about to revise uh, the book because it's now almost 10 years old. And it, so needs, a, it needs to be revised. That's wonderful. What's new? Well, I think what we've seen since uh, I wrote What Makes a Terrorist is a uh, uh, very uh, large expansion of lone wolf terrorism. Hmm. Uh, people acting on their own, maybe inspired by some of the terrorist organizations, but not guided by them, not trained by them, not deployed by them. And I think that's a very different type of terrorism. They tend uh, to be people who have run into problems in their lives who are carrying out these acts, uh, whereas the 9-11 type terrorists, the terrorists who are sent by the terrorist organizations, are uh, much more disciplined. They're much more dangerous in the types of acts that they can carry act out, although the lone terrorists are also dangerous, of course. Uh, and it's more of an existential threat when it comes from a terrorist organization as opposed to these lone wolves. How, you know, I, I imagine wrapped into all of that is the, the role of the media and social media and the, the way that a, a lone wolf now can be radicalized with more ease than in the past. Absolutely. Uh, there's uh, the way information spreads on, on the Internet. Uh, also, uh, I don't think we've learned uh, that the media should stay cool after these terrorist attacks and wait for the facts to come in. Invariably, the initial reporting is wrong. Even the best initial reporting tends to be wrong. Uh, and that just raises fear in the public and blows the fear beyond uh, beyond the, the uh, risk that we're actually facing. Draw the, the, the line here between uh, radicalism and terrorism and, and your economics. Uh, is that still a, a huge motivating factor here, just uh, economic disparity 
uh, economic dissatisfaction? I think economic disparity has actually very little to do with it. Um, the terrorist organizations seem to be driven by geopolitical concerns, uh, by occupations and conflicts and being on often the wrong side of history and using the only means they have. Um, the terrorists themselves are not uh, people who are desperately poor. Even the lone wolves tend to be people who look like the populations that they're coming from. Um, and certainly go back to 9-11, it was people who were well-educated from, from very wealthy families from the countries that they came from. Um, so I think we tend to uh, look at events through a lens of uh, economics and t tend to attribute too much to economic motivations. How about through the lens of, of public policy and how we respond to this, how we prevent mm. it from happening? Mm. How much better are we at it now than we were when you first wrote the book? Well, I think we're about to take a giant leap to being worse at it. I mean, I think provoking uh, um, religious groups um, and criticizing entire religious groups is not a way uh, to uh, prevent radicalization. Um, you know, I admire what George Bush did in many respects by going to a, a mosque and uh, saying uh, that our enemy are these terrorist groups. Uh, I think we need to focus on terrorist organizations and try to degrade their capabilities um, and need to take security precautions against the lone wolves. But that's not the biggest threat that we face. That's not an existential threat, I think, uh, to the U.S. Uh, on the other hand, a terrorist group being able uh, to use weapons of mass destruction, that is a threat to the U.S. Yeah, I look, Alan, and to bring it back to, I guess, where we are right now, there's a construction of a cabinet. I've got to ask a difficult question. Lawrence Kudlow has been a terrific market economist with a steam track record at Bear Stearns. Mr. Eisenbeis down at the Atlanta Fed documented this a number of uh, years ago. And, of course, the rap that will be put out by critics of President-elect Trump is that he's not a fancy-pants Ph.D. economist like Alan Kruger. Uh, with great candor and respect for your work and, frankly, Mr. Kudlow's, Larry Kudlow's, do you think it's a requirement to be an academic and a Ph.D. to be the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors? It's not a requirement, Tom. And at the very beginning uh, of the council, uh, in fact, there was a lawyer who was the chairman. Uh, beginning with President Eisenhower, he asked Arthur Burns to review the Council of Economic Advisors, and it was Arthur Burns's view uh, that the council should be run by uh, uh, Research economists, mm -hmm. uh, economists who are familiar with uh, the literature, uh, doesn't have to be an academic, of course, and hasn't always been an academic. Uh, so I don't think there's a requirement uh, that it is uh, a fancy-pants Ph.D., as you put it. Uh, but I think it uh, is helpful for the person yeah. to be knowledgeable of certainly of yeah. the economy, but also of what the right. uh, research has found about the economy. Let me interject here, David, as you jump in and suggest that by fancy pants uh, Ph.D., Mr. Gurr and I understand that Alan Kruger works more than a 51-hour work week, <laughs> where the stereotype of his work at Princeton is about 18 hours <laughs> a week. You know, he sort of wanders in Thursday to teach, a, a, you know, undergraduate. Very quickly here, Alan, when, when you look at that role of CEA chair, how much of it is, is, is baked? In other words, how much determinism do you have when you inherit oh, that role question. to shape uh, what that council does? Well, certainly at the beginning of the administration, you do. Um, it's a great job. Uh, and I should say, uh, uh, I think very highly of uh, 
Larry Kudlow as a television persona. I've always enjoyed interacting with him. You've never called me a persona. Uh, <laughs> Continue, Alan. Tom, I'm still holding out hope for you that there's a job for you. There you go. No, there's a bow tie. There's a bow tie restriction. <laughs> Uh, in the beginning of administration, when procedures are getting set, I think that's the time when individuals in any of these top-level jobs uh, can have the greatest influence. Um, the council is a terrific job. Being chairman of the CEA is a terrific job because you're basically heading a think tank right next to the president. You have an outstanding, hardworking staff. They come for a year. Again, this is the way that Arthur Burns set it up for President Eisenhower. Um, the uh, staff uh, usually doesn't care too much about uh, stepping on people's toes because they're going to go back to their previous jobs. And um, you get to weigh in, basically, on any economic policy that you yeah. want to. The second Arthur Burns reference of the of the show there. I know. Downtown. It's a little too much. <laughs> Alan Kruger, with great respect, thank you so much, and congratulations early for any and all of whatever persuasion uh, Trump's infrastructure mistake, Blinder and Kruger in the Wall Street Journal. And we look forward to the new uh, new edition of What Makes a Terrorist when, uh, when the book It was a chilling out. book. I remember when he brought it out. And I, to be blunt, David, it was so brutal that a lot of people couldn't read it. You know, it was just so shockingly direct about uh, what his research showed in the mindset of those that commit terror. get your attention, Americans. Imports would be 20% more expensive. Exports would be 12% cheaper, which I guess means the president-elect wants to buy a BMW or a Mercedes or <laughs> something like that. Sebastian Galley has done terrific work on this at Deutsche Bank. Let's talk about something I don't know about, and my guess is most of our listeners don't know about. Sebastian, good morning. The Better Way Reform Package in a Border Tax Proposal. Discuss. It's, a, it's an interesting and, uh, and uh, I guess, a groundbreaking proposal made by the incoming administration uh, to tax imports, essentially, uh, the equivalent of, uh, of putting on a, a duty. That means if you would be shopping in Walmart, it would be significantly more expensive uh, under the new plan. On the other hand, uh, there's really no penalty for, uh, for exports. So net, net, in theory, it should be uh, a positive for the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, it also probably means uh, a bit of inflation uh, coming through, some more appeal for uh, the U.S. because it looks uh, essentially better in terms of, uh, of balance sheet. It's, uh, to some extent, a, a good reform. Um, and the outcome would be uh, a stronger dollar and more inflation coming into the U.S. It, uh, it's a radical plan. Uh, it's an interesting plan, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's very sizable in terms of its implication uh, for uh, basically the mix of industries uh, within the United States and, and maybe some reshoring of uh, activity in the U.S. What's your sense of, of whether or not this is going to become policy? I mentioned I was speaking with uh, Ed Morris of City yesterday about uh, the oil market, and he brought uh, this up in that context as well, that a, a border tax adjustment could result uh, in a boon here for uh, U.S. producers. W what sectors do you see this affecting the most? Well, anybody who's exporting, including the, uh, the oil sector, but uh, the export sector in the United States is relatively weak, so pretty much uh, anybody who starts uh, to develop these kind of activity, and it'll probably take a few quarters for that to happen, will, will benefit from this. There are basically low added value type of uh, 
producers uh, in the IT sectors and the likes, which would benefit uh, very strongly because their margins are, are very poor. Uh, on the other side, there, there are those who import a lot, and that's uh, actually right now the, the majority, um, and they, they would suffer, and they would have to take a hit on their earnings. You, uh, you of course, are, are, are d- deeply involved with Forex strategy, and let's let's uh, talk a little bit about China. We kicked off the show talking to Stephen Roach yeah. about uh, the Chinese economy, and, and I wonder if you're, you're forecasting here a sort of Groundhog Day uh, in the new year, just in uh, January and February of, of this year, there was so much trouble with China's reserves, and we saw so much movement in the Chinese uh, currency. What's your, your sense of where we're headed here in the new year? Well, what we've seen is uh, the Chinese essentially have imposed more and more capital controls uh, domestically uh, to, to stem the, the risk of outflows, including um, many mergers and acquisitions which were going from China, particularly going into into Europe to acquire technology so that it could renovate the, basically the industries uh, within China. Uh, that has been cut, which tells you that uh, there's a lot of pain. That means that in terms of uh, potential outflows, uh, they're, they're still there, but they simply are not realized. What will happen in the beginning of the, of the year is, as pointed out by our colleagues in Asia, Asia, is that the retail investors will be allowed to export uh, 50,000 uh, per person, and that typically means uh, some upper pressure on the dollar versus uh, the renminbi. So there might be uh, some some weakening of, of the renminbi in the beginning of the year. It might also be used uh, as a signaling tool the, to the incoming administration, uh, but that's not very clear. It's a bit uh, playing with fire if it's a very large uh, devaluation. Uh, if it's uh, a medium one, that uh, it's more debatable. So. Uh, you know that when the big guys are playing and uh, mm-hmm. playing poker, it's uh, it can be a difficult game. Are there indications here when you when you look at the currency, when you look at the Chinese currency, are, are you confident here that the the Chinese government is letting it, is willing to let it float? Well, they can't let it float, uh, not uh, not fast enough, because it would effectively be a, a form of extreme tightening of uh, monetary conditions uh, within China. So what it's trying to do is achieve uh, a, a reasonable pace of, of devaluation. Its currency is uh, cyclically uh, overvalued, even though in the long term it's, it's actually quite cheap. They do have significant problems. And as the Fed tightens, it's driving a lot of demand for the dollar, plus the issues that they have in China. Um, and, and so the outcome is they're, they're doing their best to, uh, to have a moderate devaluation. That comes into the face of an incoming administration, which has decided to some extent, at least for now, to confront right. China. So it might be difficult. From where you sit, what is the ability to, quote unquote, make money or maybe make alpha in EM currencies right now? Is that a context board and hazardous? Or is there a real opportunity in the travails of emerging markets given President Trump? Well, I mean, particularly if, uh, if we're going to get trade wars, in the, which uh, seems uh, somewhat likely, uh, the uh, emerging markets are particularly vulnerable. The, then again, some of them are, are doing a little bit better. Higher oil prices are uh, helping some oil producers, and some of our colleagues are putting out to the Russian ruble as maybe being not so unappealing as it used to be. So there, there are some uh, marginal opportunity within emerging markets. But the waves of, of risk coming from the fact that the Fed is tightening, that there is significant risk, and it's propagating uh, in different waves uh, through emerging markets, is, is not over, and so you could get uh, further shocks going to emerging markets, whether it's Mexico, whether um, it, it's uh, other it's part of, uh, of the emerging market spectrum, uh, which uh, which will still be coming in uh, in the in the next uh, few quarters. It's difficult to time them, uh, but there are some pockets which maybe are of uh, a value, and, and Russian rubles have been identified by our colleagues. You mentioned Mexico, and it was a currency we were following so closely uh, during the presidential campaign. What is the legacy of that? Uh, ben, when you look at here the, the, the Mexican currency versus the dollar and what the future uh, of that pair is, uh, what do you see? 
Well, first I have to apologize because uh, a few years ago I was uh, so bullish on the American peso reforms and all the likes, and it has been uh, essentially a disaster. Uh, the uh, currency has been devaluing at a steady pace and is extremely linked uh, to uh, expectations of, of Fed tightening. It's been used as a proxy given its, uh, its high correlation, and, uh, and it also means that uh, even though the, the risk has uh, faded recently in the Mexican peso, that they still can, uh, can come back in, in the next few quarters. So. Unfortunately, whatever the fundamentals on Mexico and Mexico are, they are driven by the Fed, and to a secondary extent, the potential for some confrontation with the Trump administration, which thankfully mm. seems to have diminished. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.